The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Welcome to our Bible study this evening. Let me just shuffle some paperwork here and ask you to turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, please. Matthew chapter 1. We welcome you if you're watching online. And for those of you that are here, well, you've been here, so you're still also welcome. All right, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse number 18, please. All right, Matthew 1 and 18, we invite our young people to go outside. I mean, our teens, I think, is how that works tonight. Sorry, sorry for you younger ones, you've got to put up with me. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. I pause there with my reading because we looked at that the last time we were together in this passage. And my, my burden in that message was simply this, to show how a righteous person reacts to a difficult situation. How Joseph reacted was because he was righteous. You see this, it says in verse 19, her husband, Joseph, being a just man. The idea of that from the original language is because he was a just man and because he did not want to make her a public example, he was minded to put her away secretly. Now, without the benefit of verses 20 and following, we understand that this is a very stressful situation. When you're in the, in the fog of war, you don't know what's happening tomorrow. You wish you knew because it might clarify some things that are happening now. Just like in our nation, even this night, we don't know exactly what's going on, but we know God is in control, so we don't have to fear. Um, we have confidence that these things will get straightened out. But Joseph did not know the future. And so he, in his righteousness, had to decide, how am I going to deal with this situation of a seemingly certain unrighteous act that my betrothed, uh, beloved young woman has done in her life? And so he was just. He was a man of God. He was blameless in the law. He was a man who was a believer in God. And because or in consequence to that, he did not want to make her a public example. He, he wanted to exercise mercy toward her. And that is the characteristic of righteousness that was lost to the Pharisees. Uh, I said uh, from the example of John chapter 8 that they did not exhibit any of this kind of characteristic. Their, theirs was a harsh righteousness, which was not really righteousness, you understand, but it was a harsh legalistic righteousness that simply wanted to use a woman caught in the act of adultery to get at Jesus. It was a purely political ploy. Uh, There was no real righteousness there, but certainly they were exhibiting no mercy, no grace, just condemnation, uh, just kind of like the blasting character of a legalistic approach to the law of Moses, but God desires mercy and not merely sacrifice. He desires the fruit of our lips that is praise to his name. He desires uh, justice and kindness and love and all of those characteristics 
He desires the heart, not the lips. And so that's the kind of righteousness that Joseph had. And it led him to think about conducting himself in a certain way uh, towards this young woman who was found to be with child. And so Joseph models for us a kind, merciful, gracious righteousness. Uh, It was not necessary that his wife be stoned uh, or the man with whom she seemed to have been. Not necessary because the law of Moses was not operative in that department in this time because the Romans had control of the place. The Jews could not um, exercise capital punishment over anyone. That's why they had to submit Jesus to the uh, Roman soldiers and the Roman governor in order to get him to be crucified like they had plotted. So uh, he was reasonable, gentle, forgiving, long-suffering. All of those are parts of true righteousness. And at the same time, he knew that he could not be in partnership with somebody who had apparently acted in a very, a very shameful way. And so he was not going to marry this one. However, uh, for this to work out, you know, really, if this relationship is going to work out, it has to have, there has to be a miracle, <laughs> okay? Not just a miracle of a divine a virgin conception and birth, but a miracle of reconciliation of the of the two right because Joseph thought you know really this is a bad situation so divine intervention was necessary to convince Joseph of the truth of Mary's claim that a baby was on the way by the power of the Holy Spirit so God sent an angel to give this information to Joseph and that's in verse 20 as we continue our, our just exposition through Matthew's gospel, we just started with the Christmas narrative here at Christmas time and we carry on with it. Verse 20, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Look at that identification. Clearly, Joseph is a son of David. Do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Wonderful message. And she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, And he called his name Jesus. Now just go back to verse number 20. The message from the angel. The angel calls Joseph a son of David. That he was. He was a privileged man. What a privileged background he had. I'm not talking about privilege in the way they talk about privilege today. I'm talking about, think of the the ancestry of this man. Think of the heritage of this man. You know, you would be awfully proud if you could say my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was the president or something like that. Well, he could say that. Amazing. But his background was stained by the disobedience of ancestors between David and himself and even that of David himself. Rebellion that sent the nation into exile from which it had not, not yet recovered by the time of Joseph. And yet even today still has not yet recovered from that exile which they experienced under the hands of the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. His righteousness 
led him. This is Joseph now. He was a righteous man. He was different than his forebearers. His righteousness led him to plan the way that he did to sever the relationship with Mary in a kind and gentle manner as we just discussed. But the angel said to him, look at what he said, Joseph, son of David. He addresses him, direct address, by name, by title, or by by background. And then what does he say? You notice that? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. He was afraid. He was afraid that something bad had happened with his espoused wife, his betrothed, his engaged young woman. He was afraid of what would happen if he took her to himself as a, as a husband and wife. What would that mean for his uh, peaceful existence? And so the angel, and plus, whenever an angel shows up, there's always fear involved. So do not be afraid. Now, I just paused there for a moment to encourage you with this word. People have bandied about different statistics about this, and I haven't done an exhaustive study, but what I did do was very simple. And that is, I looked up all the phrases, all the times that the phrase, do not be afraid, occurs in the Bible. There are 50 of them. And they appear in this little handy set of notes that I have here. And then I said, well, there's, there are other phrases like that. I just looked up one other one. Do not fear. 51 more. So over 100 times in the Bible, you have the exhortation, do not be afraid. Listen to a few of them. I, I, I selected this, and I know it's kind of launching off of the passage a little bit, but I wanted to do this because uh, it's easy to be afraid. Uh, in COVID land, it's easy to be afraid. In upheaval politically, it's easy to be afraid. Um, in your own personal life, it's easy to be fearful. But listen to this. Genesis 15.1 After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Genesis 43, verse 23, in the midst of the, Genesis, or the Joseph account, and remember the sons of Jacob have come to get food and go back and then come back and go back again. Joseph said, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Joseph said to them in chapter 50, verse 19, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Exodus 14, years later, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. What's happening in Exodus 14? The Exodus, the Exodus itself. He says, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. Joshua 1.9 Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua repeated those words in chapter 10. He said, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. I highlighted a number of these and I can't believe how many there are. I'm not even reading all of them. Uh, the king uh, 
Saul said to a woman, do not be afraid. Now that was in a context of a time when she should have been afraid. That was the witch at Endor. She should have been afraid. But uh, most of these are good mentions of do not be afraid. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. 2 Kings 19.6 uh, This is uh, Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard. This is of the enemies, the military enemies, which the servants of the kings of Assyria have blasphemed me. Gedaliah, 2 Kings 25, took an oath before them and their men and said to them, Do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it will be well with you. Jehoshaphat also. The Lord said to him, Do not be afraid. <clears throat> Proverbs 3.25, not written to anyone in particular, but to all believers. Proverbs 3.25 says, Do not be afraid of sudden terror, nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. What else should we not be afraid of? Jeremiah 10.5 says, of idols, they're upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, these idols, for they cannot do evil nor can they do any good. God tells Ezekiel, like an adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them. Joel 2.22, this word is even used to animals. God says it this way in Joel 2.22, Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. In other words, God's saying, although the land is desolate, you animals don't have to worry. Don't be afraid. I will provide for you. Matthew 14.27, Jesus walking on the water. What does He say to the disciples? Be of good cheer it is I. Do not be afraid. Afraid. Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus came and touched Peter, James, and John after the end of that uh, great revelation of Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And He came to them and He said, Arise, do not be afraid. And, boy, well, there's so many more. Let me just stop with this one. Matthew 28, 5. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Zacharias was told not to be afraid. Mary was told not to be afraid. The shepherds were told not to be afraid. Jesus said, Friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. John speaking, or Jesus speaking in John 6, He said again, it is I, do not be afraid. God told Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. Paul, you must go before Caesar. Do not be afraid. 1 Peter 3.14 But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. In Revelation 1.17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. And that's only about 15 or 20 of those 100 messages in the Scriptures about not being afraid. And so we'll leave that for now. I'd delight to 
just go through the rest of those sometime with you. But Joseph was told to not be afraid in the, in the face of a very difficult circumstance. So he has this dream. He's told, don't be afraid to take Mary. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Don't worry, Joseph. There is an innocent, although miraculous, explanation for what's going on here. Hundreds of times the Bible tells us about this not being afraid. And that's what Joseph was told. Easier said than done, though, isn't it? Easier said than done. Don't be afraid, you know. Yeah, don't be afraid. It's easy for you to say. You're not facing what I'm facing. The disease, the cancer, the COVID, the whatever, all that stuff. The political upheaval. Yeah. Well, God's still with us. Now, the angel told, jo- told Joseph that, uh, well, you know how sometimes the older folks, when you have an ultrasound at 20 weeks and you find out that it's a little girl or a little boy, and they say, oh, you found out God's secret. Well, God told his secret here. You're going to have a son. It's a boy. It's a boy. And then, beyond that, he saved them the trouble of figuring out a name. Have you figured out a name yet? See? Wouldn't it just be nice if God would say, you shall call his name or her name, you know, whatever? Yeah, that would be so nice. Uh, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so, no trouble with the name here. Uh, It's given by God, and that's what uh, God wanted for the ages For 2,000 years, the God-man who came to be known as Jesus, Yeshua, Yehoshua, Jesus in Greek, Joshua, the Hebrew derivation of the name. It means Yeshua, salvation, or Jehovah saves. And the reason for his name is stated and given very clearly, for he will save his people from their sins. This is... I want to say the highlight of the passage. It is the very significant truth that Joseph is told. It is the real meaning of Christmas. It's the real meaning of all that Jesus did on the earth, especially his self-sacrificial death and that which we remember at the table of the Lord. This truth that he will give himself to save his people from their sins ties together the whole life of Jesus into a single package from birth to death. It is the reason. The incarnation is not an end in itself. It is a means to an end. A means to an end. Now, the end is more than just the self-sacrifice of the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. It also includes the self-revelation of God through Christ, like Hebrews 1 says, in these last days God has revealed us to, to us Himself in His Son. In his son. That revelation also is part of this, but the, the, this very significant part here is that he will save his people from their sins. Jesus did not come to bring a health and wealth gospel, he did not come to be a mere moral example or a good teacher for us. He came to save people from their sins, to deliver, to rescue, to save them from not oppression, not to preach a liberation theology message, but to preach a message of liberation from sin. Not from oppression, not from the man, not from a government or anything else. This is salvation from sin and to provide for all people, Gentiles included, a rescue 
from their sins. This is a rescue mission. This was a mission of deep payment for sin. And then just as important as this, he because he saves from sin, he restores our ability to relate to God. And this is where we sometimes fall short. We, we say, you know, believe in Jesus and you'll be forgiven and saved from your sins. Saved from hell. Well, it's not just saved from hell, it's saved from sin itself. And it's not just saved from hell and from sin, it's saved to God. Make sure you have that in your mind. Salvation is not just taking away the negative. It's building onto your life the positive. It's changing you so that you can have a relationship with God and so you can have righteousness and holiness and a life-enriching, life-sustaining, eternal peace with God. That's what Jesus did for the world. Now, don't gloss over this little detail. It's easy to do this. And maybe you say, well, you kind of ruin it for me, Pastor, by, by taking us to this depth. But I want you to notice that it says, He will save His people from their sins. Who is, who is the angel talking about there? His people? Don't gloss over this fact. God was speaking to a Jewish man with a Jewish betrothed wife who was about to have a Jewish baby boy who was going to save His people, the Jews, from their sins. That is the meaning of the text. No matter how hard you can try, you cannot use a big enough shoehorn to get Gentiles into this verse. They just aren't there. To get Gentiles into the big picture, you have to connect the dots with other passages of Scripture. Okay, um, I'm just trying to be faithful to the text here, not to you know to to bend it and shoehorn into what what I want it to be there. It's his people from their sins. He's talking about the Jewish people, but it's easy enough to go to other passages of Scripture to bring Gentiles in. I mean. The Lord said in prophetic voice, it's too small a thing for you, O my servant, to redeem Jacob. I shall give you also to the Gentiles, and they shall come to your light. In Ephesians 2.11 it says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by, by the Jews, by what is called circumcision, that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, and having no hope and without God in the world. That is a hopeless situation. Think of that. Without, without, absent, strangers, aliens. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now just as much as I said there are no Gentiles in Matthew 1.21, there are no Jews in this verse. These are, these are Gentiles who are brought near by the blood of Christ to the covenant promises of Israel. So Jews and Gentiles do come together into one body, but that's not the issue here in chapter 1, verse 21. Yes, the Jews need to be saved from their sins. All right. Um, oh, by the way, if you deny what I've just said, or put the Jews in a purgatory of sorts. I'm talking about replacement theology purgatory here. 
if you put them into a purgatory of that sort, where you believe that God will have nothing to do with the Jews or the nation will not be raised again, I think you're doing the devil's work. I'm sorry to have to say that, but I think that's the case. The Bible is very clear that God is not through with the Jews. And after all, what, 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 what the devil does in the prophetic scriptures in Revelation 12 is he stands before the woman who is about to give birth to a child and wants to devour that child. When he can't get to the child because it's caught up into heaven, then what does he do? He wants to persecute the woman. And when the, when the earth and God helps the woman, then he wants to persecute her seed. Don't do that. Don't be involved in that kind of thing, even if in the name of you know, quote-unquote sound theology. Not at all. God is not through with the Jews. Jesus came to save His people from their sins and He will do it. He will have a people surrounding Him in the, in the millennial kingdom and in the eternal state that will be called Jews yet at that time. And there will be a nation rise again to prominence because Jesus came. That was one of His purposes in coming to save His people from their sins. All right. Go to verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Behold, the virgin shall bear a, a, be with child rather, and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, we don't have time tonight to go into Isaiah and all the context of that, but let me just say, if you do that, you're going to be kind of confused because you'll look at that and say, well, when is this virgin-born child supposed to come? Back 700 B.C. or now? Or how does this work as a sign to King Ahaz? Ask for a sign, Ahaz is told. And Ahaz says, I won't ask for a sign. Oh, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. He says, Isaiah says. And the sign was mentioned 700 years before the birth of Christ. It was a virgin conceiving and bearing a son, a very miraculous event, obviously, without question. This doesn't happen in terms of the world's understanding of things. But I think what's happening there in Isaiah is he's saying, in the length of time that it would take such a child to be born and to be raised up to a a point of being able to discern right and wrong, whatever age that is, two years old or 18 months or something, um, before he's uh, weaned from his mother's milk, Before that time period elapses, if that birth were to happen right now, Isaiah says, then before that time period is up, the military threat on Israel's doorstep would be removed. The Assyrians would be gone. The birth of such a child did not happen 700 years ago. It was in Joseph's day that this prophecy finally was coming to pass. You see, God doesn't work in hours and minutes and seconds like we do. He works in increments of time that are much, much greater. 700 years to him is not even a, not even a day, you know, a space, short space of time. The child that was to be given would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a huge clue that the virgin-born baby would not be a regular human being. But rather, though he would be fully human, indeed he, would, he could not be regular because he did not have a father. To be fully regular means you have to have a, a father. And he could not be regular because he could not be a sinner. 
That's a regular old human. (laughs) Father, mother, sin. But he didn't have a father. He had a mother, but he didn't have sin. He could not be regular because he had to be a perfect, infinite sacrifice for sinners. He would be fully human, accepting sin, of course, and a human father, and also fully divine, so that the baby could truly be called God with us. This is the Bible's brief explanation of the doctrine of the Incarnation. Uh, it's not in, embellished. It's just simply stated. Although, you know, to the unbelieving mind, it is unbelievable that this sort of thing actually could happen or would even be imagined to happen. But this is how it works. John's Gospel goes into a little bit more detail. It says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus says, you know, I, I was in heaven, now I'm down here on the earth. Basically, he doesn't say it in exact that many words, but exactly that many words, but he does say it. But at the bottom, the incarnation is a mystery, isn't it? How can it be? The incredible truth of Christianity is that God came down to humanity, himself in the flesh. We explain how this works by a fancy phrase called the hypostatic union. That describes how the divine nature and the human nature of God are, can I say, put together. Um, You don't want to say melted together. It's not really that. That leads to an error. But uh, put together, two natures and one glorious person who is our Redeemer. To say the least, it boggles the mind. To kind of get a handle on it, that, that idea though of two natures in one, I, I find it helpful to think about two things. One, the, the, the divine book that we read, it's a human and divine production, both God and man. And the life of the believer. If you believe that you are a sinful person and you believe that the divine nature has come and you're a partaker of it somehow, then you also have this kind of dichotomy of divine and human uh, in you. Not in the same exact way as Christ, but there's a similarity there. And, you know, a lowered similarity, if you will. His is heightened, infinitely heightened. Um, but it boggles our minds. We believe, based on the testimony of Scripture and eyewitness accounts of the apostles who wrote in the Bible, that this is indeed what happened. And note, too, that the Bible does not allow us to suggest that God was disguised as a man or made merely to appear as a man. That's that divine apparition or docetism as it's called is a heresy that's been roundly condemned, clearly so. But he was in fact an actual human being, God in the flesh, human and divine natures. He was a man by gender. That's very clear. The Son of God revealed Himself in humanity to humanity, in humanity and to humanity to show us exactly what God was like up close so we could see it and understand it. Now, we can understand that God is incomprehensible. That is, no finite creature can fully know Him. And I'll close with this thought. No finite creature can fully know Him. But the Apostle John, Peter, James, Andrew, even Nathaniel, Philip, 
Levi, they knew God as well as anybody could know God. God cannot be known fully, but He can be known truly, and He can be known well. So you cannot know God exhaustively, but you can know Him in truth, and you can know Him well. Not as well as He can know you, yes, but I encourage you, as you think about in our study in Matthew, and you think about the Lord Jesus, remember that He is not only making a way for your sins to be forgiven, for you to be kind of reach escape velocity from those sins and to be able to have fellowship with God, to be saved to holiness. But he's also demonstrating to you what God is all about. He's showing you what God is like. And he's helping you to know God. And after all, to know God and his Son, Jesus Christ, is what? Eternal life. That is eternal life, my friends. John 17, verse 3, I think it is. I have that verse number right. It's in John 17 for sure. That is eternal life, to know Him and His Son whom He has sent. So we can know God truly. We can know Him well, although we cannot know Him fully. But we find out what God is like by learning of Jesus, the God-man, Emmanuel, the God with us. And so we're going to stop there uh, for now because of time, not because of lack of material. I have uh, the rest of this chapter and all of chapter 2 ready to go for you, and I'm so looking forward to it, but uh, we'll have to do that another time. So join us again the next time. We'll be back uh, Sunday morning at 9.45 and then 10.45 and 6 o'clock, three services all online, all here, unless you know something happens with uh, COVID and we all you know, get an outbreak and uh, we have to stay home. So hopefully that won't be the case, but... And pray uh, God's blessing on you all. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you protect us and keep us. Those, Lord, whom you have ordained to become ill these last days, we pray you'd raise them up to full health. Give them great confidence. Give them uh, you know, uh, patience as they uh, go through this, this school of contentment. And uh, if that happens to the rest of us, may we also have that same kind of attitude as well. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for Emmanuel. Thank you for the way that you sent him. Thank you for giving us this peaceful evening in which we could pray and hear some from the Word. Thank you for the young people upstairs. Thank you for the even younger ones here and their part with the church. We pray that although they may not be grasping all of this, that they will be hearing some and it will be building into them a storehouse of divine truth that will come to fruition later in their days and keep them from error. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, I wish you all a good night and uh, may God bless you and keep you in His name. Amen.